episode of the Cinema Psych Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Alex Swan. We have a great show for you today. An interesting one, too. One you might not actually think about uh, watching the film, but it is a fantastic piece of fodder for psychology. I want to thank everyone who's listened to the first couple of episodes thus far. It's been great seeing how many shares and likes and listens, getting feedback from everyone. It's been fantastic. Please keep doing that. Please keep sharing the show far and wide. It's awesome. Uh, I want to get as many people listening to this as possible. Of course, of course I do. Um, I want to thank a donor uh, in the since the last time we recorded an episode, Jason Spiegelman coming in with a solid donation to help us keep moving this show along. Without further ado, let's jump into the episode because we have a lot to talk about. My guest host today is Dr. Mark Klippenstein. He received his PhD and master's degree from York University in Toronto, which is in Canada, of course, in social psych with a focus in legal decision making and jury decision making. I love those two topics. This research examined the role of juror expectations regarding sexual assault victims and the impact of the uh, adjudication of the case through the legal system. He is currently department chair and professor of psychology at East Central University. His research and teaching interests include forensic psychology, physiological psychology, and he teaches the research and statistic courses at both the graduate and undergraduate levels. He has been at ECU since 2007 and is the uh, current chair of the IRB committee. Hey, me too. He and his partner also run a hold. I hope I'm saying that right. Hereford Cattle Farm and have an 18 month at home. Uh, so he's got his hands full. Mark, go ahead and say hi to everyone. Hello, everyone. Uh, you actually did pretty good. Uh, it's Paul Herford. So uh, that's pretty good. <laughs> okay, Paul. Okay, sounds good. Uh, so how's it going? Everything's well. Um, you know, it is a busy time of year. It's our fair season. And um, it's busy at work. Uh, the beginning of a new semester. Um, and so it's all fantastic. You know, I'm in, I'm enjoying the work and the home aspects and everything is jiving pretty well. So, um, which is good. I've, I've been having a good time. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you're with me today to talk about a great film. But before we get to the film, I just want to know a little bit more about you. Let's have the um, let's have the listeners find out a little more about you. So the first thing that I'm going to be asking all of my guest hosts is what do you love about film? You know, film for me has always represented family time. Um, you know, a time when I get to spend time with those people that are important in my life. Um, whether that be my son when we're watching, you know, a cartoon or my wife in a favorite movie we watch, um, or even growing up, uh, you know, watching movies with my parents and watching movies with my brother. It has always been about uh, family time. And, and I've really enjoyed that aspect of film. And so, um, or hanging out just with my friends too, it's included family and friends. Uh, and so I really have enjoyed that component of film. 
you know, just as an example of, of that, you know, when I was growing up and this kind of dates me a little bit, but you know, this is in the time when uh, VCRs, you know, they're kind of expensive. So you didn't have them in your home necessarily. And we were definitely not able to afford one. And so during special occasions, we would rent a VCR for uh, a birthday. Um, and my mom would let us rent as many movies as we want, want it. And until so we'd, you know, we'd rent all those fantastic eighties movies like the Goonies or, um, um, you know, anything starring Stallone or, or Schwarzenegger, you know, all those, all those action movies. And we just watched them over and over and over again. And, and that just really became a large part of, of my childhood. And, and some of my best memories were, you know, going and renting that, that videotape. Um, and then eventually DVDs either with my brother or my family, um, as I grew up and, and really growing up watching all those different movies. So all of that um, brings me back to and connects me to my past and, and my current you know life. Um, you know, me and my wife still refer to a lot of movie lines in our day to day activities. Um, you know, a lot of Ace Ventura lines are uh, lines from some of our favorite movies um, make it into our daily day-to-day conversations. And, um, you know, it, it, it really is just a neat part of how film connects people is you can say a movie line, uh, and everybody knows what you're talking about that seen that movie with you. And, and it became an experience, a moment of memory. And, and that's, that's my favorite part of what movies represent and what film can bring to the classroom. Just as a as another example, um, you know, me and my brother would go rent movies, um, and we'd that was the time we got to drive the car around, and so um, we would often try to go to the farthest movie rental place that we could in town. Uh, you know, sometimes twenty minutes away, um, and I'm sure they had those movies at the movie store. You know, five minutes away, but it's a time for us to hang out and uh, get in the car and have a little bit of freedom and independence, um, and and that really helped me grow up. Um, it was a part of my, of my coming of age. Um, you know, you see that a lot in the movies and it's not much different in real life. You, you really do develop, um, and become connected to those parts of the media, um, and the environment that you're exposed to while you're growing up during that time. So building on all that, um, you know, that's, that's kind of why I've always wanted to bring film into the classroom is I want students to feel that connection. This is, this is their coming of age. And so if I can put a movie and connect it to a psychological concept, then they're going to remember that concept when they see that movie for the rest of their lives. Um, and that's something that I can have a very powerful impact and powerful influence on them. Um, and, and I, and I try to use my powers for good um, and teach them something that I want them to know about. Teach them something that I think is is relevant um, to them being a good member of society. Sure. And that uh, sort of jumps me into the next film is... Um, so you, you mentioned um, just then that you do combine film and teaching uh, because of the you know, the familial aspects. So now you do that. What do you want your students to get from you doing that? You know, I think, and and that's a great question is, um, I want them to get that 
psychology is everywhere. Psychology is in everything around us. It is part of, uh, of, of every part of our life. Um, and you see it in, and you see it in movies, you see it in the media, you see it everywhere. And they're making that connection. You know, I want them to know that psychology is in their home. It's in the movie theaters. It's all around them. It's in the media. Um, and, and that is really important for me to get across to them. Um, because they may not remember the definition of this concept or that concept, but they will remember that psychology right. is everywhere. Yeah, that's that's actually my reasons for putting uh, films in my classes. I haven't really said much about it in, in any of the other episodes, but like, yeah, I, I want to have them see where that psychology is everywhere and um this art medium is just one of the many places so yeah awesome i think psychology you know can help bridge that gap between me and my students um you know there's that generational gap that keeps getting bigger and bigger and goes back to that um, you know, general, I, you know, joke that, you know, college students stay the same age, but professors keep getting older and older. Um, or at least I keep getting feeling out like I'm getting older and older. Um, but I can bridge that gap. If I watch a movie that they watch, if I watch one of those popular movies and I talk about it and I use it as an example, then I've made that connection. You know, I can see them go, Hey, this is someone who understands me. This is someone who is interested in something I'm interested in. And if I can make that connection, I got them. And then I can talk about concepts and definitions and structures and uh, ideas and T tests, whatever it is. And yes, I, I do use film even in statistics or I use even, yeah, films even in statistics, but um, you know, a lot of it is just trying to make that connection. You know, it's, it really truly is all about that connection. If I can, if I can make that connection, it's priceless. It's, it's more, it provides more, um, give back to me and to them than anything else I can do in the classroom. If I can make that connection. And, and that is why film is so great because every person's idea of film is different and everyone makes that connection in a different way, but yet it still works and it works across all those different formats. You know, the, the simplest way I can say it is it is it really does make, um, you know, me connected to them and them connected to me. But it also makes psychology part of everything. Um, and it's really that double whammy, that combo effect that I love about using movies in the classroom. Now, I, I uh, mentioned very briefly uh, you, some of the research that you do, uh, do you have anything currently going on with research? I know you're busy with doing a lot of other stuff, but, uh, um, so yeah, um, you know, um, research is, is still a part of what I do, but mm. I'm at a teaching college, you know, the, the primarily goal right. of what I do is to teach classes. And even as department chair, the little bit of release time, I'm still teaching a lot of classes and I'm, I'm usually overloaded cause we're usually short staffed. Um, and so a large part of what I do in terms of research is the supervision sure. of student research. Um, you know, master's theses, I'm doing one of those right now and I'm working on, I've, you know, 
every year I seem to have a, a an honors thesis project or two. Um, and then I teach the um, statistics, writing and design and experimental psych rotation where I get students through three classes. Um, and through those, um, I teach them the research experience. Um, so they learn how to do statistics, they learn how to design an experiment, and then they get to run an experiment. And these are student-run experiments from beginning to end. Um, and there, and there, it's a great way for me to connect. Another great way for me to connect with students, um, and and includes, um, you know, them engaging in their own research and their own ideas, and me kind of guiding them through that process. Um, and I, I still try to engage in a little bit of my own research here and there, but uh, it has shifted a lot right. to uh, student supervision of research as opposed to conducting my own research. You know, when I do get to do my own research, um, it tends to focus on those um, expectations and expectancies that occur in the legal system, um, particularly as jurors, you know, hear a story or um, particularly about, you know, victims and I focus primarily on sexual assault victims. Um, you know, their expect expectations and beliefs regarding that victim and their behavior um, and how that influences their adjudication through the judicial system. Um, and and it's 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 interesting perspective because a lot of it has to do with um, beliefs which have a negative impact on that victim, um, but which shouldn't. Um, and so that it's that's an expectations and a series of beliefs which influence their case sometimes in a very um, you know negative way. Um, and and I try to get involved in such a way so that I'm studying that process and then trying to get that information out so that we can help victims and, and help them through that process. Excellent. And, and that is, uh, uh, with a focus on the American justice system, I imagine. Yeah, that's, that's actually a good point is actually start it. Um, you know, currently, yeah, most of what I do is on the American legal system. Um, but when I started, it was taking a, a specifically, Canadian legal context. Um, and, and a lot of the research I had done was replication of stuff that happened in a U.S. environment and then taking it and spinning it towards the Canadian legal system. Um, so yeah, there, there, it was, it was a little bit of a challenge learning that difference between the two, but I was kind of more trained in the Canadian perspective and, and now kind of taken to applying it to that U.S. legal system. You know, definitely when I moved back down here, um, I, I re definitely re you know focused a lot more on that American legal context um, and try to try to jump off from that perspective. You know there was there was a lot of challenges when I made that switch over between the two because there's a lot of terms and stuff that are different, um, a lot of different procedural effects, and obviously case law is different. Um, and so it was a bit of a challenge, but um, it was it was a neat challenge. And and you know now that I've kind of got things switched over. I think I would have difficulty going back um, to that original uh, situation or that Canadian context, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I kind of had to redo some redo some work to get. Yes, uh, definitely. To uh, took a little bit to kind of get back up and running with those materials and get everything working in, in a way that, you know, fit this environment versus that environment. So what film do you have for us today, Mark? 
Well, it is one of my favorite films um, and, uh, you know, has a couple things that I really love about it. It has my uh, favorite actor um, and it's one that I can easily show on class. Um, you know, it, it is pretty innocuous in terms of content. So there's not a, a lot of, of language or other warnings that I have to let students know about. Um, and we can just enjoy that film. Um, and, um, the movie is Castaway, uh, starring Tom Hanks. Castaway, Tom Hanks, directed by Robert Zemeckis, came out in the year 2000. Yeah, um, also dates me, um, <laughs> particularly when I pick those older films. Um, you know, it's actually at a point where, uh, you know, a lot of my students weren't even born yet when this movie was made. So really does put some date on me as a professor. Tom Hanks looks great in it. Rewatched it recently and he looks fantastic. I mean, he doesn't really age much, but he looks great in that film. Yes, 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 he does. Um, uh, you know, I rewatched the movie um, between yesterday and today. Um, don't really ever get to watch a movie straight through anymore with a toddler around. Um, so it's usually, you know, spits and spurts um, as, as I get through it. But uh, it, it still holds up. I still think it's a great movie. And um, for those who are not familiar with Castaway, I don't know how you couldn't uh, couldn't be familiar with it but it, for those of you who aren't uh it is the story of a man named chuck nolan played by uh tom hanks uh and he is a uh, i want to say uh systems manager for fedex the uh logistics company and uh he his life is all about being uh being on time or think time time is a major theme in the film and um he is dating a graduate student and I, before we jump into some of the psychology i have to say as a former graduate student and mark as a former graduate student um but probably more in line with your experiences than mine uh she was she had to print or copy her uh dissertation uh, because the beginning of the film is set in um 1995 so uh early days of the internet uh, she had to copy her dissertation wow yeah yeah um this is a little bit off a topic but um i actually remember faxing my dissertation uh to my <laughs> Uh, supervisor. Um, I had already moved out to Oklahoma, so we were still working on things and uh, sending it via fax um, so I could get, you know, corrections and, and changes in a more timely fashion than mailing it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was an early haha moment. Uh, anyways, this uh, graduate student, her name is uh, Kelly and uh, she is played by Helen Hunt. And really, those are the two main names in the film. There are other supporting characters, but really it's 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 Tom Hanks and Helen Hunt. Uh, and like I said, the film is directed by Robert Zemeckis. Uh, and uh, it, it, on the way to a uh, FedEx, uh, I would I, I guess, new office or some other office in another country to speed them up because they suck because apparently that's his job to speed up FedEx offices that suck. Uh, his plane 
um, crashes into the ocean and he is stranded for a while on a small outcropping island that I just could not suspend my disbelief every time I watched it, how this island with foliage and everything on it and usable land was not settled um, or known about. Uh, So that was odd, but he's there for a while and then um, you get uh, great scenes. Uh, We'll, I'll play for you uh, a scene about him making fire in a little bit uh among other things but we're gonna explore uh mark and i we're gonna explore a uh the an aspect of the film which blew my mind when he first suggested this because honestly I hadn't thought about it mark what is that aspect um uh, problem solving uh you know it's uh, a large chunk of the movie is just him solving problems um you know a large part of that first act is uh first and second act is is him solving problems relating to being on an island um yeah it's um you know one of the the most pressure that you could be under to to solve problems yeah it's (laughs) being stranded by yourself on an island you're gonna solve some problems or you're gonna die you know it really is just incredibly high pressure to get something accomplished you know survival you have to survive so very high pressure situations Right now, you and I, uh, like like we was, we said, we both rewatched the film, and uh, you had mentioned the problem solving aspect to me uh, several weeks ago, and uh, I, when I rewatched it, I watched it with that lens, and uh, we were we were making notes on this film, and we basically came to um, similar conclusions, but you had a. Uh, a differing viewpoint from my, I'll say you had a different viewpoint from my total viewpoint, though you did share some of my, uh, my analysis. So what I want to do is pit those two ideas together or pit them against each other, let's say, and not say, and not, and not so that they're, um, one's wrong and one's right or or one's better than the other, but that they're two different ideas about problem solving that I think this film really can carry uh, both of them. So what is your general idea about problem solving in this film? Uh, for me, um, the the problem solving in this movie kind of takes on a, a gestalt approach. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea that um, the sum of the parts is is mm-hmm. greater than the whole um, kind of concept. You know, it starts with um, this idea that you have to kind of represent this problem idea in your mind. Um, and then you kind of have to restructure that problem to be able to come up with solutions to it. Um, and so it's kind of both of those aspects playing off each other that, um, restructuring and representation kind of going back and forth as you kind of come across this, this problem idea, you know, you're on a desert island and you need water to survive. So you have to reorganize and restructure that concept of what water is or what you can drink and then try to solve that problem from that point. 
Um, and, you know, and, and, and we'll talk about this and, uh, I think we'll talk about this in a little bit. Um, but, uh, you know, using coconuts to obtain that, that water or rather, you know, something to drink, you know, this idea that, you know, you need water. Um, I don't have water. How can I restructure and reorganize my environment to solve this problem, um, to come up with a solution that will let me survive this, this situation? You know, kind of taking this concept idea of, you know, the problem idea um, and looking at it in a whole way and looking at those pieces in such a way that when you put them together, you're recreating and restructuring something that wasn't necessarily there to begin with. And this approach specifically has a couple big problems that you often see where you're trying to solve these problems. And those kind of relate to uh, functional fixedness is one of them. And uh, mental set is the other one. Um, and so both that functional fixedness and mental set kind of play together and, and kind of get in the way of, of successfully solving problems sometimes. You know, this is, you know, these, these are things that are, are hindrances that I see regularly and daily in, in our, in our lives. You know, we have a cattle farm. And so a lot of what we end up having to do is take something that was made for one purpose and use it for, for something else. Um, you know, this idea that <laughs> I have fixed a lot of stuff with baling wire. Um, and, uh, you know, that was not its intended purpose, but yet, um, it works for that situation. So when you're when you're looking at uh, functional fixedness, it's this idea that um, it's a hindrance because people hold certain objects as having a particular function. Um, and sometimes it's difficult to use it for a function that is not its intended purpose because you are so locked in on the idea that it can only be used for one of um, you know, its original intended purpose. And so there is this hindrance that occurs, um, in this situation. So if you have, um, an idea of what you can do with something that can sometimes, um, cause a hindrance in your ability to use it for something else, you know, unless you can break that functional fixedness and get beyond that, sometimes you're trapped in that idea of what that tool can be used with or can be used for. Uh, the, a good example that uh, many psychology students will see and, and maybe uh, um, the lay public might be familiar with is Dunker's famous uh, matches and the candles problem. Uh, uh, participants were, were given a scene uh, and they were told, here are your uh, materials for uh, making a shelf that uh, the candle can be can stand and be lit. And in one scenario, they are told that it's a box of matches. And in another scenario, uh, they're just told that they have a mat. They have matches and um, and the candles. And in the first condition, the one where they're told they have a box of matches, they can't get past the fixedness of that is a box of matches but in the other condition where they're just told they have matches they quickly see that they can make a shelf out of the box that the matches come in 
And so that's that's an example of of the functional fixedness of the box of matches that many um, students are told about uh, Dunker's research back in the uh, middle of the 20th century. Yeah, I love that example. You know, it's it's one I frequently use in class because um, I think it's just a great example of how, you know, how we problem solve. Um, uh, one of the ones that was brought up to me from a student is they were talking about taking the uh, door off the hinges. Um, you know, and so they get that first pin out of the hinge because there's no weight on the door. It's all level and everything's good and get that first uh, pin out. And then for the next 20 minutes, they're trying to find something that will pop out that other pin um, in the bottom part of the door. Um, and and it took them forever to figure out that, hey, I'm holding something that fits perfectly in that hinge, um, the pin that I just took out. Um, and it's just a great example of 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 that functional fixedness idea wow that's actually really good you know i'm just thinking you know man that's a great example and and he's holding this thing that is used to hold the door together this pin is used to hold the door together not necessarily as something that is used to take the door apart just a perfect example of of a real life example of how this happens this has just always been uh, an example that has stuck in my mind um as as a perfect example of um of functional fixedness and a functional idea is that the function that you use something for really sets how you want to use that object in the future. Right. It leads you to literally wanting to do out of the box thinking, you know, trying to think of other ways that you can use these objects. Right. That is, that is a good life hack there. So what are, are the aspects of um, the problem solving with this gestalt uh, idea in mind that are that are presented in the film do you have any examples of those um yeah i mean there is a large chunk of the movie at the beginning part of that movie probably a good 40 minutes where he is doing nothing but solving problems you know it's one of my favorite parts of the movie to watch because all you hear is the sound of the waves and the wind um and you're just in chuck's mind as he's there solving problems you know it's it feels like you're there because there's just there's no dialogue it's just it's just objects and him trying to solve things it all comes down to you know it feels like you're there in this quiet headspace with him which is which is how we tend to solve problems you know sometimes we're solving problems with other people but a lot of times our problem solving is is by ourselves you know in those moments of quiet where we're trying to to make these come up with these solutions you know, just as examples from the movies on the island and FedEx stuff starts to wash up on the island and he starts to, just, he finally decides to open up these boxes and he starts to gather around what he's, what he finds. And, you know, it's stuff like a dress, um, you know, where there's this leather corset part and a fishnet and he, and, and at first he thinks, now what am I going to do with this stuff um which he eventually turns the the fishnet part into an actual fishing net um and uses it to catch catch fish or you know he uses vcr tapes again something that doesn't seem like it's very useful on a on a deserted island um but he uses that to create a rope and tape um and it's just a perfect example of how he kind of breaks the the functional fixedness that exists in these objects in order to come up with ideas and ways to use them that can help him to survive. You know, all of both of these things just really demonstrates his ability to take an object and 
uh, and turn it around from what its intended function is and use it for something which is is really beneficial for him to get off the island. You know, um, I don't know what he would have done if a bunch of DVDs would have washed up if that would have been the thing. I said maybe you could have used them for reflective, um, uh, you know, help sign or, or something. But um, you know, the VCR turned into good rope, and the fishnet turned into his ability to catch food. What about the coconut scene? You know, another uh, example of this is um, the coconuts. Um, you know, these coconuts come in these big giant husks, and so he's got to peel that stuff off to be able to get inside. So at first he's throwing these coconuts against the wall and nothing's really happening. And so then he finds some of that, like um, probably volcanic rock or something that's sharp and uses that to kind of bust into the husk and is able to peel it back and uses, builds, you know, smashing it with a rock and the rock shatters and turns into like a kind of like a, a stone ax. And then that stone ax he uses to like cut and chop into that husk and then he finally you know gets the husk off and so now he's left with the the inner the innards of a coconut and it's just that that coconut shell so then he immediately throws it against uh the rock wall thinking okay this is it i'm gonna get in there and it busts all open um and spills everything all over the place well he's got the meat he kind of lost out on that fluid you know so very quickly he feels like he just wasted is, you know, efforts to bust in there. And so now he has to try again and he takes some of the other pieces of rock that were left there, smaller pieces. And, and then for the next coconut gets the husk off, does all that, and then uses that to kind of drill a hole. And then he can get at that, that coconut water, uh, coconut milk, um, that, you know, allows him to get something to drink before he was able to start collecting water. Um, just another great example of just working outside the box, trying to break that functional fix in this for tools and ideas and trying to get something that helps him survive on that island. It's a perfect example of how, you know, sometimes a little finesse in problem solving as opposed to frustration, you know, with throwing that, that coconut against the, the wall um, can help him kind of solve that problem of, you know, I need something to drink. I don't have anything to drink. Um, and, and, and using that little bit of finesse to solve that problem to get some fluid. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then what about the fire scene? Uh, yes, the fire scene. One of my, one of my favorites in the movie, um, you know, the, 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 the fire building scene, um, kind of involves, um, mental set a little bit more than functional fixedness because he had been trying to solve it using the same methods that he had used in the past. So, you know, we all think of, um, building a fire by taking a stick and, having it perpendicular to the ground and then, you know, rubbing our hands across it, spinning that stick. And when he does this and he does it all day long, cause you know, we start and we see him in the day and at night he hasn't succeeded. Um, and in fact, at one point he, you know, cuts his hand um, and, and there's blood and, and, and other things and he's frustrated and all that stuff's going on. Um, and he can't, create fire he can't get that fire to be created using that that previous mental set of how he thought you should build a fire of that preconception of how you should do that you know so at this point it's you know his hands are sore they're cut um and he goes back to that coconut to eat and he's using that stone axe to kind of saw the the meat of that coconut um and then at that point as he's like sawing and sawing and he stops it's like you can see that aha moment that epiphany that kind of i got it uh kind of pop in his head and he's like i've been doing this the wrong 
way the whole time. I shouldn't be spinning that stick. I should be pushing that stick. Um, and then rubbing the stick through a pushing motion um, seems to be a more efficient way for him to get more pressure and to build up the heat necessary for him to be able to, you know, start a fire. And, and it works um, um, just by changing that mental set, changing his what he thought was the right way of doing it into a way that actually did work. You know, all in all, it's just really is that perfect example of, you know, trying to solve a problem one way, realizing it doesn't work, um, and then using an analogy from something else to say, ah, I should be doing it like this, and then very quickly solving that problem, coming to that very quick resolution um, as as you're trying to solve this problem. Right. And I'm going to go ahead and play that scene just because that is this is pure Tom Hanks. And then we'll come back to talking more about uh, Gestalt problem solving. The air got to it. The air got to it! that you had for gestalt on this one and it has to do with how defined the problem is do you want to talk a little bit more about that um yeah when you uh look at the kinds of problems we come across in our day-to-day lives you kind of see that there are really two types two main categories that we come across you know ill-defined problems and well-defined problems uh well-defined problems have a solution that if you follow the correct procedure, you'll come up with the answer. 
Um, you know, math is a perfect example of, of a well-defined problem. If you follow the operands in the, in the formulas and follow the procedures, you'll come up with the answer. Um, but not all problems are like that. Some problems are ill-defined problems and those ill-defined problems, um, are more things that, you know, you start at point A and you need to get to point B, but how do you get from one to the other? And sometimes it's difficult to know the solution between to get from point one to the from point A to point B, you know, to solve that, that next stage. When you look at a lot of the things that happen on the island and the problems that he's solving, they are well-defined problems. You know, he's, once I figure out how to throw a spear and catch a fish, I'll have something to eat. So that is a very straightforward problem for him to solve. A lot of the problems on the island are also ill-defined problems. You know, this idea where I know I had to get from A to B, but how do I do it? How do I get from one to the other? Um, and if you if you think about it, the biggest one is just getting off the island. You know, he knows that he's on the island and how do you get off? Uh, how do you make that jump from and that leap from one place to the next? Yeah, the major ill-defined problem. It's kind of the it's kind of the key what ill defined problem of the entire movie, you know, it's how do I get off the island? You know, it ties into stuff like how do I get off the, how do I get past those breaking waves? Um, cause they're keeping me and pushing me back on. How do I store enough water that I can take with me? So I, I won't die immediately of thirst. Um, you know, what is the best time of year, um, to try to make it off the island? Cause there's those trade winds that shift, um, at a particular time of the year. All of those go into, helping him solve that ill-defined problem, but it's things that he doesn't even know yet until he's been there long enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So eventually he, you know, creates a calendar using that hole in the cave and can chart the time. Uh, he maps the wind and when it's going to change based um, on that calendar. All of that goes into him solving, you know, that ill-defined problem. Um, of how you get off the island. It's, it's part of that big package of solving something which is not easy to solve. You know, when you think about it, we in academia live in that world of an ill-defined problem. We have students, for example, who know they want to have a career in psychology, but how do they, how do they accomplish that? How do they find out what they want to do? How do they find that career that they want to spend the rest of their life doing? And I think in a lot of ways that students connect with this idea of the ill-defined problem in the movie and, um, you know, and, and can use that analogy of, you know, you're stuck on a, on a desert island. How do I get off? It's not that much different for them um, when they're trying to think of their careers is, I know what I want to do. How do I make a career out of this? And, and I think they make that connection pretty handedly um, when we watch this movie. In fact, you know, I, I try to connect those points for him even by saying, you know, imagine that this university is an island and you're trying to get off the island. How do you get off the island? Um, and, and, and it helps them. I, I, at least I feel it helps them. You know, I think it really does help when they rephrase this concept of what, what are they doing there and, and what do they want to do in the future and how do you connect those points? You know, those are just a few examples that come to mind of how you can kind of use that conception of um, ill-defined and well-defined problems and, and how you can build it into 
discussions and, and jumping off points for your discussions with your students. I like the example uh, that you tell your students. <laughs> How are you going to get off the island? I love it, especially if they're Survivor fans, right? Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Although I guess it's not a good idea to get off the island in Survivor. I, I, I'm mixing metaphors here. Okay, that that does. I, I mean, these are all great points about Gestalt, and I love teaching my students about gestalt problem solving because of the amazing, the wealth of examples that you can get them to actively be engaged in. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, but when I was watching the film after, like I said, after you told me about the problem solving aspect, I was coming at it from a different perspective. And a lot of the times gestalt and the information processing approach are discussed in cognitive psych classes, even problem-solving classes. Um, so you, you, you essentially talk about the gestalt and reframing and restructuring. But when I was watching the film, the problem-solving uh, aspect was the information processing approach. And this is about the search for a solution moving from a initial state to a goal state, but also conceptualizing the problem space in between those two states. Right. And so this was a, uh, this was first identified and discussed by Newell and Simon, uh, two guys who were super fans of computers. And so this is why this is called the information processing approach uh, because it's using the idea that your uh, brain is a computer. So the, the main, I would say I had two, two particular examples going through this uh, when I was watching the film again. So I, I actually will recast your uh, examples of the coconut and the fire, I saw those both as an in, an initial state and a goal state, right? The initial state of the coconut was that it was whole, <laughs> hard to get into. And the goal state is that mm, I want some of that sweet, sweet coconut milk, right? And so he had to figure out how to get from a whole coconut to a coconut that was open that where he could get the meat of the coconut and where he could drink the coconut water because at that point he didn't uh, have any sources of fresh water. The only thing he had was salt water. So he had to, to go through a bunch of intermediate states in the problem space to get from the initial to the goal. And those are represented by the aspects of the scene like throwing in against the wall that's not working uh smashing a blunt rock against it that's not working uh realizing that when he smashed the rock that it created a um sort of a wedge shape like an axe and realizing that an axe is better than a blunt force against it because you can get that sharp edge of the wedge into a groove on the husk. And then he opened it 
finally was able to get into it, but he opened it with such force that all of the water spilled out of it. I mean, luckily he had some food with the, with the, um, meat of the coconut, but you know, still had to move from one state to the next. So that's how I viewed that one. Similarly with the fire example, he has to move from an initial state, no fire to goal state having fire and, and being able to solve those, uh, being able to move from, from one state to the next in the problem space in the intermediate space, uh, is figuring out that, you know, his hands moving from back and forth, making the stick spin wasn't working. And then, uh, realizing, as you said, that, uh, the, um, movement of the saw on the coconut could be used on the wood is an intermediate state and then realizing that he needed more air when he saw the smoke another intermediate state because he didn't have fire yet it was just smoke and so he realized that he needed to get more air underneath the combustion point where he had his little kindling uh in the uh, uh wedge of wood and then he moved on to another intermediate state and eventually put more kindling on it and then he had fire right uh and all of those moves from intermediate state to intermediate state within the um, approach to this problem solving the information processing approach they're called operators and those are the permissible moves right and so uh, a non-operator in the fire example would be like well let me just throw some water on it Uh, that's not going to help you move from from one intermediate state to another you have to realize that oh i need more air for this mixture to work a little bit better, right? So it, that's what I saw in several of the uh several of the other uh scenes was this information problem solving approach. But I after you've described the gestalt, I'm also in agreement that those are great that that's a great way to look at it too. And that's the beauty of it, I guess, why you use this one in your class is because you could talk about both and not be wrong and still blow everyone's minds. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, um, and I'm just kind of, you know, thinking of this now as we're talking is it's a great example of how different theories um, explain the same behavior and and how you can kind of maybe use this as an example in like a research class or um, as to how you can come up with different theories and different answers to the same question that still answer the question, but they use different ways to get to that end state, that end idea of, of what is the, what is being the correct answer, maybe not correct answer, but you know, the, uh, the, the answer that um, seems to answer part of that problem. You know, it's a great thing to, that, you know, bring forth to students and, and put into their minds is that, you know, um, not only are there different ways to explain um, different theories that explain what's happening on the island, but it's it's how science works. Science works by coming up with competitive theories um, or competing theories as to how 
um, things make sense or how, how, you know, how, how the world works. You know, the reality is that there's not always um, the same answer for the same behavior. And, and that just is, you know, a fact of fact of science. And the fact is that both theories can be good at explaining, um, explaining the theories and bits and pieces of what's happening in terms of problem solving. Right. Uh, it really is. Uh, this is why I had to say at the beginning of the, the episode, this is uh, wild. This is not a film that most people think about for using in psychology. Wild. You know, that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of the reaction I get to from students when I say, Hey, we're going to watch Castaway in class as a way to talk about problem solving. Um, you know, and I dedicate three days in class to go through and watch this movie together with wow. them. Okay. And you know, it's a, it's a two and a half hour movie and, and, and it's just part of that experience. You know, it comes at a point in the semester uh, where they're just ready for a break. We're all ready for a break. And I just love their reactions as we watch this movie together. You know, ultimately, because we're watching it together, it really does create this collaborative group effect by experiencing the same stuff at the same time. Something that they can talk about in terms of these concepts, hopefully for the rest of their life when they think about them. Just a... Oh, overall, a really great example of how you can use film and class um, and movies that you might not even think about using this. You can look at them and take an eye from what is what is what do I see from a psychology perspective in this film that I can use to demonstrate principles to my students. Yeah, that's great. This needs to be added, by the way, that um, I'm probably going to go add this or at least tell them. Uh, this needs to be added to the Indiana University or Purdue University uh, list of cognitive science films because I don't think it's on there. Yeah, that's that's cool. That's awesome. And it's it's a great it, 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 it's it's great. It has to be added to that. People will uh, cycle through that list and be like, wait, what? I'm sorry, what? Castaway? No. This is this is not cognitive science. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah that's just uh you know they're gonna be like yeah uh, the movie with the guy on an island by himself that's that's cognitive psych how's that possible yeah a fedex guy what, what is this about fedex and and cognitive science no i don't believe you so that's the cognitive science aspect of the film um but there are some social psych themes that we both picked up on i said at the top of the show as we were talking about uh as i was introducing the film um one of the themes of the film is time and uh not having enough or uh not using it appropriately um you see that with the relationship between chuck and kelly uh, the latter not using it appropriately and then um, Chuck is all about, you know, efficiency and um, says these really crass things about, you know, being on time and making sure that you do things in the quickest amount of time. Uh, so time is is a, a big theme in the film. And I think that from a filmmaker standpoint, that is what Robert Zemeckis wanted you to um, gather. But I think there is a, another aspect to the time theme uh, 
which is relationships. So, um, Mark, you had brought up uh, some really good points about this in our note taking. What's the what's the relationships aspect of Castaway? Yeah, um, you know, one of the big ones for me is the creation of of Wilson. You know, Wilson is the volleyball that he finds on the island when he's, right. you know, gathering up all those FedEx packages and opening them. Um, and during that scene where he's building fire, he cuts his hand. You know, I think I mentioned that earlier. And and in that moment of frustration, he takes that volleyball and, you know, slams it against the wall, um, that rock wall. And in doing so, creates Wilson. Um by creating of what looks to be like a, a face on this volleyball, you know? And so just by having a bloody hand and, you know, throwing that volleyball against the wall, he creates, he creates a friend. He creates a confidant, uh, for him on this lonely and for his lonely travels on this Island. You know, it, it does a couple of things. It's, it's a great movie making device, um, it's quiet for a large part of the movie. Um, and so it allows dialogue to occur. Um, you know, I'm not typically a big fan of exposition in, in movies, but it works in this one. Uh, so it, it kind of moves that plot forward and allows him to discuss things in a way. So we know what's going on because it's quiet. There's, there's no thought, there's no dialogue, there's no conversation without someone else being there. And Wilson provides that something else, you know, and it works in such a way that Wilson gives us a reason for Chuck to talk to somebody. Um, you know, we all know that when we're sitting around completely alone, a lot of times we don't talk to ourselves. And so it's not realistic to think that someone's just sitting there explaining everything out loud. I mean, that might happen a little bit, but um, the Wilson character creates uh, a way to do this that that makes logical sense for the movie. You know, the creation of Wilson kind of solves another problem for him. He needs... Uh, social interaction. You know, I, I take an evolutionary perspective on that, on this, um, in the sense that, you know, we're, we, we evolved to have a social component to our lives and, and we crave it. We desire it. We, we miss it when it's gone. We go out of a way to develop it. You know, ultimately we are social creatures at our core and, and we need that social belonging um, to make us whole, mm -hmm. you know, nowadays, whether it's through social media or in person, you know, we need to be around other people. It's just, it's just that simple. We, we find ways to do that. And, and for Chuck, he, you know, created Wilson to fill that need. And, and, and in society, we see that when that need is not met, bad things happen. So in this moment of frustration, you know, Wilson is created and it creates someone who he, he can bounce ideas off of, off of, he can, you know, have conversations. Um, it's someone who acts as his logic, um, uh, person, um, you know, so Wilson becomes, you know, this friend, um, and ultimately a, a piece of himself that kind of seems to be pulled out, 
um, and placed into Wilson, uh, someone that he can debate with and, and, and logic with and, and try to solve problems with really is just a piece of Chuck that's created, you know, so someone that he can argue with and, and come up with solutions, you know, at one point he's arguing about how much rope is left on the Island, uh, with, with Wilson. And he's, he treats Wilson as if he is not an inanimate object, but is, as is as real as us conversing or having an argument with, with any of our friends. You know, he, he has debates with Wilson. He argues with Wilson over the best way to get off of the Island. Um, it just, Wilson is as much of a character in this movie as, as anybody else is, you know, it, it, you know, one of the things I, I, when rewatching the movie I saw was at one point he's in the cave and he has, he has a fight with Wilson, you know, he, he argues with him and then he gets frustrated and he, and he, and he throws Wilson out the cave entrance um, and then he immediately regrets it. Um, not much different than what would happen if we had an argument with a loved one or a friend. A lot of times you say things in that heat at moment that you, that you wish you hadn't said. And so he immediately tries to go out and find Wilson, um, because he's sorry. He's sorry that, that he said those things and he, and he wants to, to kind of, to kind of ask for forgiveness, uh, from Wilson. You know, it's it's kind of a perfect example of what happens during an argument where, um, you know, you might walk away from a loved one in, in a heated argument and then immediately regret doing so. Um, and he tries to correct what he did wrong. He tries to right that wrong with Wilson. You know, all of this really, to me, demonstrates this really strong social components of this movie and it's and it's done through an inanimate object i I just think that's i think that's amazing and powerful filmmaking yeah uh i i will i definitely agree about uh, the piece of chuck um becomes wilson uh it's a good as you said it's a uh, you know a, a movie making device but also we do it in our own lives you know we give our pets they're not inanimate but we give our pets names we talk to them we give them voices i know i give my dog a voice um so we we and and we speak for them right and uh when you're growing up you have dolls or you have action figures or something and you speak for them too um you create different personas and stuff and that is a part of you being able to explore aspects of your your life as something else and i think wilson represents well one thing it represents a way for chuck to not be lonely uh and he he acts as though wilson's gonna reply back right back to him and but really it's chuck's own voice replying back to him right uh and it's very striking when he throws Wilson out the out of the cave and then he goes out there and he's like, Wilson, where are you? Nobody's going to say anything back to him. You know, he could have lost Wilson on the island because he couldn't find him. Wilson's not going to say anything. And I think that really puts a pin in the um, escape 
you know, I, I love that part of the movie. Eventually does lose Wilson. So, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt there. Um, you know, I rewatched that that scene again today, specifically that scene. And and one of the things that was really powerful for me was it's the only scene in the movie where they show Chuck crying is when he loses Wilson. I did not, I did not pick that up. You know, he doesn't cry when he gets stranded on the island. They show him getting frustrated and, 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 you know, being upset, but they don't show him shedding tears. You know, he lays on that raft and sheds tears because Wilson is gone. You know, I, when I, it's just a very powerful part of the movie. And, you know, when I caught that today, um, you know, I just, you know, I just thought, man, he doesn't cry in any other part of this movie. He is, he is truly upset that Wilson is gone. You know, he doesn't cry when he loses Kelly. He doesn't cry when he comes back, but he cries when he loses Wilson. And, you know, it's probably because it's, it's because he's losing a piece of himself. You know, he, you know, it really comes down to this idea that he's leaving a piece of himself out there in the, out there in the ocean that, that was represented by Wilson and, and he's crying because of everything that it took to get him to that point. And, and losing Wilson is, is that transition to, to surviving. Um, it's just a very powerful scene in the movie. Um, and, and one that I won't ever look at the same again. Yeah. And this jumps us into the other social aspect of the film, which is the um, relationship that he had with Kelly that he ultimately loses. Sorry, spoiler alert. Um, you know, he's, he spent four years on the island. They thought he was dead. I did like that. Oh, what did you bury? Oh, things. Yeah, I know they they talk about like burying his pager in his cell phone, um, you know, and the pagers really date this movie <laughs> again too. Yeah, um, yeah, your stuff. <laughs> oh, pager dates the movie. I mean, the movie starts in 1995, so it makes a ton of sense. But yeah, they, get, they come back in 2000, and um, people are like, pagers. What are pagers? Um, but there's a great scene at the end. It's essentially Tom Hanks monologuing about the theme of loss. And I think if he hadn't lost Wilson, he would not have come to this realization about losing Kelly. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and play that scene for you all. And we'll come back and discuss the loss. We both had done the math. And Kelly added it all up. Knew she had to let me go. I added it up. Knew that I had I'd lost her. Because I was never going to get off that island. I was going to die there. Totally alone. I was going to get sick or I was going to get injured or something. 
the only choice I had. The only thing I could control was when and how and where that was going to happen. So I made a rope and I went up to the summit to hang myself. had to test it, you know, of course, you know me, and the weight of the log snapped the limb of the tree, so I, I, I couldn't even kill myself the way I wanted to, I had power over nothing. That's when this feeling came over me like a warm blanket. I knew somehow that I had to stay alive. Somehow. I had to keep breathing even though there was no reason to hope. And all my logic said that I would never see this place again. So that's what I did. I stayed alive. I kept breathing. And then one day that logic was proven all wrong because the tide came in, gave me a sail. And now here I am. I'm back. In Memphis, talking to you. I have ice in my glass. And I've lost her all over again. so sad that I don't have Kelly. But I'm so grateful that she was with me on that island. And I know what I have to do now. I gotta keep breathing. Because tomorrow the sun will rise. Who knows what the tide could bring? Mark, what do you think about that scene? You know, I I've, I think it's one of my favorite one of my favorite scenes. It's it's one that just stands out to me as a very powerful scene in the in the movie. You know, it's it's his realization about what he went through. It's, um, you know, it's very powerful because he, you know, he talks about suicide in that scene. You know, he talks about not having control of anything in, in his life on that Island. You know, he can't control getting off the Island. He can't control getting back to the person he loves. He's trapped that on, uh, on that Island, but he, he feels like he can have control of, um, of the moment of his death. Um, and it's very, 
you know, it's, it's a very realistic, I think, portrayal of probably something that everyone would go through on that island, um, just in terms of how they understand their, how, how they understand their, their place in that, in that environment and what they might be thinking of to deal with it. You know, it ultimately comes down to this idea in, in Chuck's mind, I think, that the only thing he had control of was deciding if and when and how he was going to die. And, you know, Chuck being Chuck uh, in the movie, as we learned through his character, um, goes through the process of testing, um, coming up with an experiment to test uh, a technique um, and it fails. Um, and he's alive and survives because it does fail. You know, ultimately he didn't want to, he said he didn't want to hurt himself and, and suffer on the island. He, you know, he, he wanted to make that final decision. And if that was the final way he was going to go, then he was going to, you know, end his life that way. You know, it's kind of a, a mental math part of the, the movie where, you know, in Chuck's mind, he's kind of adding all this stuff up and, and coming to a conclusion. And, and I haven't used it yet for this purpose, but I think the next time I show this movie, I think it would be a great place to, to jump off on a, a discussion of, of suicide and maybe have, you know, we have a great suicide prevention team on campus and, and bring them in and have discussions about those thought processes and, and, and how we can help them deal with those things. Because I think, I think people not just on desert islands have these thoughts. And so, you know, what can we do to help those individuals? What can we do to be aware of that? And how can we help with their mental math so that it doesn't equal that, that ultimate solution that, that they think will solve things? Yeah, that's a wonderful point, actually. Um, the suicide prevention, uh, as a piece to this because, and, and, and I didn't come to that realization either until you just said it. Uh, and I think that's because you're not actually focused on that uh, while he's trapped on the island. Um, it, it's only afterward that you realize that uh, he was he felt hopeless. And he wanted to do something about it. Uh, and. I think that has some really significant parallels with just regular, plain old, non-stranded suicidal ideation. Yeah. Well, those are the two main aspects of the film that I think um, we both picked up on. Uh, but before we end, I think we had a couple of just random notes uh, about the film that we wanted to share with our listeners here. Uh, so one of you, one of your favorite films was the dental work scene. Walk us through that one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a great scene. Um, you know, at the very beginning of the movie, he's at that Christmas dinner and he's kind of complaining, uh, about a toothache, you know, and he says he really needs to go see his dentist. And I think his uh, dentist's name is Dr. Spaulding, which I th believe is yes, the same is brand of volleyball that oh, Wilson okay. is, you know, so he's, he's on, you know, his tooth is really hurting him and he's really, he's making a realize coming to the realization that if he doesn't solve this problem mm -hmm. of, of having a toothache, then he is, 
you know, probably going to die. Something bad is going to happen because of this tooth. So he's using these ice skates and, you know, he's using these ice skates again, solving problems and functional fixedness and all that stuff. Use the ice skates as axes and, and rope uh, the laces to, to do other things with it. Um, and then he uses it also as a mirror and he's looking at his tooth initially and he realized, okay, I need to knock this thing out. So he is, um, he's in the cave and he's using the ice using the ice skates as as a mirror and you know he has this rock and he has this um ice skate pressed up against his his tooth and and you know anyone who's gone through dental work yeah. probably is cringing at this moment and it's one of the reasons I love to watch this movie in class and he's he's counting off he's like who and then he whacks the end of that skate and pops out his tooth um, and kind of knocks himself out because he falls down and, and hits his head. And it's a great transition point in the movie too, between newbie Chuck on the Island and seasoned Chuck on the Island. Cause I think mentally it's this idea that, Hey, if I'm going to survive on this Island, I have to do this. I have to do stuff that I didn't think I was ever going to have to do, like perform my own dental work. And, and by doing that, I can be a survivor. You know, ultimately, it's a it's a scene that I love watching in a crowd of other people because every some people are covering their eyes and turning away, and um, it's just a great social moment. Um, I've always liked those kind of moments within movies. You know, ultimately, I, I think the scene really represents this change in his mind, where he says, "You know," and I just kind of said this, but. You know, if if I'm going to if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to survive, I'm going to have to do some stuff on this island that I, I didn't think I'd ever have to do. Yeah, it is a really gnarly scene. Oh, uh, cringe. Definitely cringe. I don't I don't think anybody, even if they've never had significant dental work before, is going to be like, yeah, no, that's not a problem. They're not going to be like that. They're going to be like, you are sticking a dirty ass skate in your mouth and you're going to bang it with a rock. This, this sounds like a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds, uh, it sounds like a brilliant way to solve this problem. <laughs> exactly. sounds like a real brilliant way to solve this problem. Uh, not enough salt water in the world to fix that abscess. That's for sure. Yeah, no, no, duh, definitely not. And you had one other, um, I, I would, I, I guess I would call it a well-planted Easter egg, I suppose. Nah, maybe not an Easter egg, um, but a well, well-planted visual storytelling at the beginning of the film. Do you want to explain that as well? Um, yeah, yeah. I'd love to do that. Uh, you know, you know, this is one of those things I probably didn't catch the first, you know, eight or nine times that I watched this film, but that very, one of those very early scenes, opening scenes, you know, they're panning. Um, through his office and they're showing him with um, you know all this stuff that demonstrates that he is someone who knows how to sail that he has skills that that eventually will come into play for him um, and and I think it's a really a neat way to kind of without ever saying it without saying hey Chuck is a survivor or Chuck knows how to sail um, but gives you the information that he has the tools to get off this island um and it's really there if you pay attention but man i missed it for a large part of a large number of times that i watched this movie 
you know, this is just, it's, you know, I, and you know, it's stuff like this that I love in movies. Cause you kept them because, you know, this is one of those movies that for example, is on cable TV all the time. And, you know, it's a great movie to grade to Cause I can jump in and just continue on with whatever I'm doing. And every time I see it, there's stuff that I see that I hadn't caught before that adds to, to the storytelling that, that goes on in this movie. You know, the stuff they show are are things like um, him on different sizes of sailboats from small ones to big ones and him receiving accolades for his sailing ability and certificates of sailing. Um, all of that just builds into this this persona of who Chuck is and, and what skill set he brings to the island. You know, taking into context with what happens at the end of the movie, it really builds in this idea of, of why he's able to solve this problem. Um, cause he has these skills that we don't even know that there's not never really said out loud, but which he clearly has, you know, I, I think this is a great aspect of this movie just in terms of the filmmaking, because sometimes, you know, those expositions like Chuck saying, Oh, I, I'm a great sailor and saying that out loud and purposeful, kind of makes it clunky and and kind of takes away from the realism of of probably how this would go down and and I just think it's a great example of of how to make a good movie. You know, ultimately just, you know, good foreshadowing and um good use of uh, of of storytelling just to create a good movie, a great movie. Um and and if you're paying attention, you catch those just regularly throughout. I would definitely agree, uh, both with the filmmaking technique and the fact that it is technically foreshadowing. Uh, it, it was as, as we discussed in the clockwork orange episode, um, with wind that, uh, it's better to, uh, show than tell. Uh, and, and I wanted to mention this, uh, last in, in that episode too. Uh, uh, I, I'm a bit avid watcher of the YouTube channel cinema sins and um, they're everything wrong, wrong with, you know, insert film here and um, consistently a sin in these films is too much exposition. Uh, so much so that, and there's so much exposition that uh, they all get different names depending on what rhymes with position uh, or not rhymes with, but what fits with, with position. So, you know, like, um, yeah, sales position. You know, we don't need to. We don't need to know. Or Chuck doesn't need to tell everyone. Like, I'm an awesome sailor. Um, you know, uh, it probably fits with his character that he's a sailor, uh, and uh, knowing and that fitting probably with the the time thing. I don't know too much about sailing, so I don't want to say more than that. <laughs> but I, I think it fits with um, his character when we first meet him which is you know you're you're this clock this clock is yours um live and die by this clock um and uh it's quite interesting uh, this was uh, i had a couple of of notes that i wanted to add to uh with the time piece uh that is a pun because uh one of the features of the film is that he has a uh, pocket watch from kelly so the time piece, <laughs> um, he has that throughout the film with him on the island. And that's his uh, way of, of keeping Kelly with him. Uh, and it, and it's broken. The, the clock doesn't work anymore. 
Um, and so all he, ha- all he has is this keepsake and no more time, uh, which, you know, is the entire theme of the film, essentially. And the other the other note that I had about this film uh, is the end. Not the very end, but when he returns to civilization, FedEx throws a big old party for him. Uh, Please don't sue us party. Um, Not explicit, but he does have to meet with lawyers Um, and they throw a big party for him. And at this party, when everybody's leaving, one guy says, hey, we should go fishing sometime. Wow, it'll be a real jerk. Uh. And then they, everyone leaves and they're panning over the food dishes and they had crab and other fancy foods. And it's like, yo, he ate crab for 1500 days. Do you think he wants crab? Probably not. Give him a big fat juicy cheeseburger or something. Oh my goodness. Oh, there was sushi there too. I was like, wow, wow, straight savage these people were they're like you know what he would like in his transition back to civilization the things that he was trying to escape from yeah i know that's uh, i I love that part (laughs) of the movie too because it just it's so you know inappropriate so many ways uh what they provide and and you know he just wants ice um you know he on the plane ride home he asks for two cups of ice and one drink and that's that's what he wants he wants stuff he didn't have right uh, exactly which should tell you like he wants the things that he missed the most you know people and things he wanted the ice and he's like man i love ice he had no way to make ice for 1500 days and then and then yeah and then fedex throws him a party with crab sushi and a, a jackass that says hey let's go fishing yeah the it's funny you mentioned the the fishing line and the fishing guy because i hadn't caught that until today when i watched uh that the end of that movie and i was watching the end of it at the end of my class while students were working in the computer lab and i'm actually mentioned that to my research my teaching assistant you know just like you know talking about this guy like hey let's go fishing um and it's just yeah it's funny it makes me laugh it's one of those one of those things again you notice when you watch this movie over and over again the guy also the guy also does the um the 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 real hand gesture like reeling in. I'm like, bro, he didn't he didn't actually have a fishing pole while stranded on a deserted island. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I'm, you know, I'm sure Chuck could uh, fish them all under the table uh, with his spears. <laughs> he he totally would. He would he would definitely. He would definitely. Alrighty. I think that's going to do it for this episode. Mark, I want to thank you for joining me to talk about Castaway. Uh, I hope you uh, learned something, uh, listeners out there. I certainly did. Uh, please, please, please like and subscribe to this podcast. And if you have a few extra dollars laying around, please um, support our process here. Um, we are a grassroots crowdsourced crowdfunded. I mean, uh, podcast, uh, Mark say, go ahead and say goodbye to everyone. 
yeah, thank you everyone. And, um, you know, I en- enjoyed this movie and I hope you all enjoy it and I could talk about it any day of the week. Thank you, Dar- uh, Dr. Mark Klippenstein for joining me to discuss Castaway. I am excited to rewatch this now again with, uh, a, um, perhaps assign it in my classes until the next episode. Thanks for listening. 